Luke chapter 8. We're looking at verses 26 through 39, so a bit of a lengthier section than we've been used to covering. We tend to take a smaller section uh, as we make our way through Luke. I'm trying to uh, spend three years, if I can, in this gospel. Um, Not really, but it seems like that's the plan currently. I've been told that unless you have over 100 sermons from this gospel, it won't be really effective. No, that's not true. This is just a, um, a, a good opportunity to, to slow down and study all the different elements of, of Jesus's ministry. And there is some repetition as we work our way through the Gospels. Obviously, the Gospels, um, uh, you know, Jesus's ministry, he, he continues to do the same thing everywhere he goes. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's um, performing miracles, uh, proclaiming the truth. Uh, correcting the Pharisees and Sadducees, and, um, and, and so we see a lot of that time and time again, but it's important that we see the value um, that it holds for us today. Well, in this section, in, in Luke chapter 8, we've been seeing how um, people are responding to Jesus. That's really what I would say holds a lot of these sections together. Um, it's, you know, began with the parables about how People respond to the word and they're divided up by the different soils, represented by you know, the good soil or the rocky soil, uh, the thorny soil. Um, and here, uh, or then after the, uh, the parables, you had the passage uh, before this idea of calming, Jesus calms a storm and how the disciples respond to him after they witness his power. And so you have examples of people responding to Jesus, either his teaching or his miracles. Um, this episode that we'll be looking at this afternoon is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. So it's an important episode in his ministry. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and one of the significant differences between the three is, is in Matthew, it inf- it's mentions two people who are demon-possessed, two demoniacs. Um, And in Mark and Luke, there's only one. And you can really get into a lot of theories and speculations about why that is, but probably the easiest explanation is simply that Matthew and, or sorry, Mark and Luke focus on the greater example of that individual who responded uh, to the power of Jesus, right? Looking at the one demoniac who, whether it was because of the the depth of his situation, like the depravity of his situation, or um, maybe the, the fact that he remained at the feet of Jesus, that he stayed and maybe the other demoniac didn't. We don't, we don't really know, but the idea um, is, is probably simply that, that they focused on the one who had the greater impact. But take a moment before we read this passage to place yourself in the shoes of the disciples here. They have just witnessed this storm that they thought was going to take their lives, right? They were terrified. Um, They're reeling from that near-death experience that they've had in the storm, and then they're looking upon Jesus with a fearful awe. In fact, it said that they were fearful, right? That they were in fear of the one who calmed the storm. And, And now, promptly upon arriving on the other side of this sea, upon the shore opposite Galilee, they face 
an entirely different kind of nightmare. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this passage that instructs us, that helps us to see something of Jesus' power and the purpose of his ministry. Help us to see its impact upon us as well, to be open to the work of your Spirit in our hearts, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear this truth, that our hearts would be prepared to receive it and to respond in obedience. Lord, help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only, that as we respond to this word, it wouldn't simply be forgotten as soon as we stop reading it, but it would have an impact upon us. And may that impact begin even now, that your, work would, your word would have a powerful impact upon our lives so that we would be, begin to worship you as we read it, that we would begin to be transformed even now. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me, Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus?' Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding countries of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, what we see here is the, the power of, of Jesus is a, it's a fearful reality. Right? We, we saw that in the psalm, in Psalm 128. We, we see it in the reaction of the disciples as Jesus calms the storm. 
and we now see it here in the reaction of the people um, in the country of the Gerasenes, the surrounding region. It's a fearful reality until we see or until we have been truly set free from the power of Satan. And that's something that we probably think lightly of, or at least we don't often think about. Um, there's sort of a tendency, I think C.S. Lewis talks about how there's, there's either the tendency to ignore Satan altogether, as if he has no power, or, or Satan or his demons, or to constantly think about Satan and the demons and to be, to be just caught up in that. But there's a, a balance here. There's a, a truth to this passage and and probably the impact of Satan in this world. We talk about that, right? The temptations we face from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and yet we oftentimes emphasize just the ones from the flesh or just the ones from the world. But the temptations from the devil are, are real. And so we see the power of Jesus is a fearful reality until we've been set free from the power of Satan. So the first thing I want to look at is the power of Jesus, verses 26 through 33. The power of Jesus, we, we see him, um, first of all, as he steps out from the boat and meets this man. Let's reflect upon the power of the demons to cause this man to go through what he's going through. First of all, he's, he's living naked. He's living alone among tombs. He no longer has a home. He's, he's homeless and naked and driving the city crazy so that they constantly are putting him in chains. Uh, we learn more about his existence from Mark, from Mark um, chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. We read this. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Right? It talks about how he can, they continually try to bind him, but he would break through them. And then the demons would drive him out into the wilderness. So he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Could you imagine that? Imagine the torment, night and day, constantly hearing, if you lived in the city, this man, this maniac, crying out, screaming, and then cutting himself with stones, taking sharp stones and causing himself to bleed. I certainly don't know if it was common at this point for, for people to, to return to like a, a family tomb and visit them like, sort of like we do today, where we might go and, and revisit on, a, on the day of a loved one's death and and plant flowers or something. But for, for them, if there was anyone in that region who, who lived in the area, these, these, these demoniacs would have scared them off, certainly. He seems to have been um, a terror, such a terror that they try at least to bind him many times, but he just keeps freeing himself. And probably one of the biggest challenges we face is, is how Jesus heals the man. First of all, he... It says that he, he asked the demon, it doesn't actually say it explicitly, 
right? It says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of God most high? I beg you, do not torment me. And then in verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So he stepped off, met the man, saw he was demon-possessed, and demands that the demons come out, and apparently this was their response to that, right? They say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of God most high? I beg you to send us, or do not torment us. So they don't listen to him initially, or they ask for a different um, response. They ask for a different, for him not to send them into the abyss. We'll see that later on, but what he does end up doing is he sends them into a, a herd of pigs. And that seems to have had a, an impact upon the community to such a devastating effect that they really want nothing to do with Jesus. Right? They ask him to depart. And I certainly can't answer all of the questions you might have as you read this text, but, um, but as we consider the circumstances, I think it can be helpful. First of all, Mark tells us that there were 2,000 pigs. So this is a, a large number, a large herd of pigs. So it represents the degree of this man's demon possession, right? I mean, we talked about Mary Magdalene already, um, and she had seven demons. This man had multiples of that, right? I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of demon possession he experienced a large herd of, of pigs represents that great number of demons that possess the man, and it's consistent with the name Legion, right? a, a, a large number. Um, the sheer greatness of the numbers would have made this story remarkable and unforgettable uh, so that the man's testimony, which we see at the end when Jesus says, go and tell everyone all that God has done for you. Right? His testimony would simply be powerful in the telling, to be able to explain what he went through, all the torment he experienced, and all that God had done for him since, right? the, the blessings that he had received. So in that alone, we have some reason, some understanding of why it would happen in this way, that we would, we would have a visible representation of those demons. It's not just a that he's saying we're legion, but we actually see 2,000 pigs running off of a cliff representing how many demons are fleeing from this man at Jesus' command. So his testimony would have been powerful. Secondly, we know that pigs are unclean for the Jews. So either this is a Gentile region, which is certainly possible, or it's a Jewish, a Jewish region living in defiance of God's law by raising unclean animals. Maybe they're, they're using them to sell to, um, to the Gentiles. But Jesus' actions, if it were a Jewish community, would represent God's displeasure, right? a, a sort of punishment upon them. Um, if it were the former, if it was a Gentile region, there's still something to learn here about possibly God's displeasure upon them because very clearly, by the end of this episode, we know that they were more concerned about their, what they lost, more concerned about their careers, more concerned about the pigs that were dead now than they were about this man who had been possessed by a legion of demons. 
So they had a greater interest in material possessions than either human physical or spiritual or emotional health, right? So either way, Christ's disciplinary actions are justified here. But we should also point out that there is a, a consistent connection throughout Scripture between the sacrifice of animals and the, the healing of his covenant people or the atoning of his covenant people. Right? You have a connection here between animals representing right, this, this substitutionary atonement, taking upon themselves the penalty of our sin, of our darkness, our depravity. And so the death of the pigs would have marked a, a clear healing of man, of this man who had been possessed. Um, and that could just simply be consistent with, with the rest of Scripture. But really, the final answer is one that we're not always fond of hearing, but we, we find in Daniel chapter 4, 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can, say, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? But we can't simply complain to him and think that we would do better or that we know everything he knows. We don't. We're not sovereign. God is, and so we trust him. Um, and we conclude with, with this, this challenge or this predicament here that the, the demons do request um, to not be sent into the tormenting punishment that awaits them into hell. Right? They, and so even their response is a, it reveals something about, um, about what awaits, the abyss that awaits them. We see that same word used in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. That word bottomless pit is the same word. Um, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So they were, they were pleading that they not be sent where Satan was in the abyss, right? that they might not receive or be sent into their immediate torment. So the primary purpose um, Luke has in this passage is to show us another example of Christ's superior power. He had the power over the weather established in his calming of the storm, um, his that, that power which was associated with Yahweh, well, this is immediately followed by his revealing power over the spiritual realm as well. Right? The demons recognized Jesus' authority and begged for him to send them into a herd of pigs rather than the abyss, which they knew would be their final destination. Their need for his permission reveals his authority over them, his power over the spiritual realm. Right? We... We can be encouraged that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So we don't minimize the power of the demons, but we magnify Christ's power over them. Right? We shouldn't underestimate the power of Satan and his demons, but no slave of Satan, as this man represents, is beyond the healing power of Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus healed this man instantly, instantly, who had been tormented by a legion of demons, as verse 27 says, for a long time. 
So the demoniac's transformation, his salvation was whole. We notice he moves, this, his location moves, right? He's no longer in the tombs, but he's at the feet of Jesus by the end of the passage. He's no longer naked, but he's clothed. And not only does he have clothing, but he's in his right mind, right? He's visibly, people, this, this, uh, people in the city could gather around and see he's no longer crazy. He was a living testimony of the radical transformation that Christ had brought into his life. He went from being a slave of the devil to a joyful servant of Christ, and he longed to be with Christ. He longed to go with him. And that's the transformation that all believers experience. I mean, remind yourselves of that. When you experience that conversion initially, I think for many of us, there was just this unquenchable desire to tell everyone. We, we couldn't stop talking about him and what he had done. And we'll come back to that as we get to the end. But many were witnessing the power of Jesus for the first time here. And, and it's important to know that we're not autonomous. We're not self-empowered creatures. So much of what we experience in life is outside of our control. Now, of course, everyone doesn't see it that way. Some think they're in control of their own destiny, the master of their own fate. And when they find they're not successful, they either blame their internal doubt or they blame, if they're arrogant, those around them for not seeing their own greatness and not appreciating that greatness. But the question is, do you realize the power of Jesus to heal? Do you recognize his power in this world? Do you acknowledge that his power is greater than the power that stands against us? And do you surrender to that power and rest in that strength? Reflect upon that in this passage. And then, he goes on to speak of the fear of the people, right, and their response. Verses 34 through 39, the people of the city, they recognize Jesus' power, and they're filled with fear. And interestingly enough, it's the same reaction that the disciples had when they witnessed Jesus calming the storm. Uh, back in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled saying to one another, who is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. They were afraid. They were fearful. However, the, there's a difference, right? And it's a significant difference because the disciples remained with Jesus. Whereas the people in the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart. Their fear said, I want nothing to do with you. The disciples were intrigued and brought in, right? They were drawn to Jesus so that their fear turns to awe and amazement. Neither of them ultimately want to remain in that fearful, trembling state. Right? They want to be comforted, but only one knows where to find true comfort, right? that it's by coming closer to Jesus. The fear of the people was improper because they do not draw near to him. And so in this passage, we find a lot of people rejecting the power of Jesus when they witness its effect. And you wonder, why did they reject him? Now, either they, were, they thought that his power was irrelevant irre to them, right? That, uh, irrelevant to their own weakness. Um, or they thought 
that his power would have a negative impact. And that's probably more likely, right? That they thought his power would have a negative impact upon their freedom to do whatever they wanted to do, to pursue prosperity in their careers. They saw his power as having a negative impact upon that. So the herdsmen, the pig farmer, the people of the country, they all witnessed Jesus's power, but they thought it would be disruptive of their lives. And, and that's where we can see it applies so much to our culture today, does it not? They might acknowledge Jesus and God as being powerful and true, but it's not going to disrupt me and, and, and the freedom to live my life the way I please. It's certainly not going to inhibit my enjoyment of rest on Sunday mornings or of sporting events or whatever it is that we think church would disrupt. There are family members and friends who can't be bothered by too much talk about God and church. They'd rather worry about their own work or, or whatever it is that, that they're trying to find peace in their lives by giving their, their lives to. But maybe they're indifferent or, or, or downright hostile toward Christianity. Some of you have those kinds of family members as well. We don't simply ignore you, but are hostile towards you. And so you've learned to simply be quiet around them. Does the fear of God, first of all, does the fear of God keep us from coming near to Jesus? Or does it cause us to want to isolate ourselves from him, to depart from him? But then notice what Jesus does. He, first of all, tells the man that he can't come with him, right? He, he doesn't give the man permission to join, to join their, their cohort as they travel. Uh, it wasn't as if there wasn't room for, them, for him. There would have certainly been room. They had provision. They would have been taken care of. But he had a different plan for his life. He tells the one who's most excited about his power within this region, where it says it seems like everyone in the city has rejected Jesus, except for this man who's been healed. And he tells him to remain in his hometown and declare how much God has done for you. So the healed man would be a living, ever-present testimony of the power of God among a city that had rejected him. We know nothing about his long-term impact, but Mark actually informs us that he went beyond just his city. He went into the Decapolis. There's you know, a region of 10 cities and is ministering there, proclaiming right, that what God has done to him there. And it says that everyone marveled at his story. How could you not? Right? With the powerful healing that Christ had brought. So one thing is clear from this, and don't miss it. Jesus calls this man to evangelize, calls this man to live his life as an evangelist. And, and so evangelism is not limited to those disciples that were traveling with him or the future apostles or the leadership of the church. It's something that all of us are called to. All of us who've experienced that transforming work right, are called to be a witness of that work to others. Now, does the fear of, of man keep us from proclaiming all Jesus has 
done for us? That's another, I think, appropriate question to ask as we're thinking about fear. Think about a proper fear that draws us near to Jesus, but then an improper fear that, that sends us away from him. Another improper fear would be a fear of man, that we would be unable to declare what God has done in our lives. All the people had to do was compare the two powers that were on display here in order to know that Jesus was one to desire and not reject. The healing that he had brought into this man's life was something they should have prized and loved and cherished, and instead they asked him to depart. And it might seem so obvious to us or to those who have believed, but those who rejected him were, were caught up in temporal and worldly cares. They could not, they did not have eyes to see what awaits in eternity. And so let us pray that that's not our case, that that's not the case of anyone in our household or in our family or in this church or among our neighbors. And may we be filled with boldness as this man was to declare all that God has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your reminder here. Through what really begins as as sort of a nightmarish episode, I think any of us would feel the terror of these disciples as as this man is is coming towards them, demon-possessed by not just one or a few demons, but a legion of them. who has been cutting himself for a long time and who is screeching and screaming and, and simply going crazy, being tormented. And then to see the healing touch of Jesus, to see his healing power to cast out these demons. Lord, we... We want to react appropriately to that. To first of all be in awe of Christ's power to heal. And, and yet it's, it's not so far removed from our own experience. While we probably haven't experienced demon possession, we, we know what it's like to be tempted by the devil. We know what it's like to, be, to feel trapped, to, be, to feel like we're chained up in our sin and in our depravity and to feel hopeless and yet to know your power of redemption, to be cleansed, to be transformed from the power of darkness into the power of light, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Lord, help us to respond to that experience with an unquenchable desire to share it with others or to be, to be bold in our proclamation and to not be afraid of what man can do but to simply be overwhelmed with gratitude for what Christ has done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.